Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Before the damn pandemic reared its ugly head, burlesque, like so much of the performing arts, was alive and well in New York City. That was news to me until I came upon an article in the New York Times. Seems the Big Apple had been, quote, a hub for burlesque for more than a decade. There were performances on almost any given night. My enlightenment, and I'm guessing yours as well, will come courtesy of my guest today, a pioneer in the neo-burlesque movement. Joe Weldon is the artistic director of the New York School of Burlesque, which she founded in 2004 after spending some 30 years stripping, modeling, and according to the New York Times, being immersed in queer punk movements. She's also the vice president of Burlicon, a nonprofit, community-oriented, professional growth and educational organization, not only for performers, but also fans and aficionados. Joe is the co-executive director of education at the Burlesque Hall of Fame, which works to preserve, promote, and advance burlesque as an art form. She wrote the Burlesque Handbook, the first published on neo-burlesque choreography. A feminist fashion historian, Joe is the author of Fierce, The History of Leopard Print. And her sex worker style project focuses on fashion, gender, stigmatization, and the policing of feminized bodies. Oh, and did I mention that Joe was voted one of the top 10 most influential burlesque performers of the decade from 2010 to 2020? I can't wait to meet and get to know Joe Weldon. So welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Hi, Sandy. Thank you for having me. I I honestly don't know where to begin. Um, So I'm going to start with, when you were growing up, did you think you were going to be a burlesque performer? (laughs) I didn't think I wouldn't be. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was already, you know, as a kid, really drawn to like, you know, the burlesque aesthetic, the sort of anti-mame, larger-than-life characters. And, um, you know, like when I was a kid and I was looking at, vintage magazines, because I would find, you know, old men's magazines and stuff growing up in the 60s. And uh, I always loved the energy that the women in the photos had. They always seemed really wild. Like, I love high glamour and I love MGM musicals, but there was just something un- like really undomesticated about them. Something really wild. While self-made too, like I like I, like I love MGM, but they all those people look like they've been fitted for costumes and mm-hmm. have their hair. And in burlesque, there was just they were just that little bit not perfect that really upped the energy level. But were these magazines lying around your household growing up? I I don't know. You know, people, kids come across stuff. I guess packs of men's magazines. I don't know. Because, you know, kids just in my generation, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you just wander around and you'd find old stacks of newspapers and magazines. And, you know, there was a dump near our house. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where I found it. But um, the aesthetic really excited me. And, you know, the movie Gypsy actually came out the year I was born. They would show it on TV like once a year and I would see it. And, you know, I just thought that I know that that isn't actually Gypsy Rosalie's life, but there was so much interesting about that, you know, and so much fun in it. Like the one of the strippers saying, you know, 
all you need is to have no talent. And I was like, that's an interesting. (laughs) Yeah, there's a concept. Uh Uh-huh. And then uh, Gypsy Rose Lee saying uh, nobody got to laugh at her because she laughed first. And I just found that all really like, it was fascinating. And, you know, when I was a kid, she was super famous. She had a TV show in an era when there were only four TV channels. So, yeah, she was a really big deal. And so this this sort of spoke to you as you were growing up and getting older. And so when did it start to gel that like, I, the interest is one thing, but I really want to make this a big part of my life. Well, when I was in high school, um, I was really, I was really harassed for being a weirdo. Big surprise. I was a weirdo in high school. (laughs) Um, And I was queer and I kind of knew it, but we didn't really have that language so much for it, you know, and I, People gave me a hard time about it and I wasn't really, I didn't really want to cover it up. It didn't, that didn't feel right. Um, And then I, like in 1977 or 78, I don't know, you know, like I joined the punk movement, uh, which was in some ways more accepting, like not a hundred percent perfect, but great. Um, And then also um, started going to Rocky Horror and I was like, oh, I'll do my own burlesque routine before the show. Cause they had this in Atlanta where I was, they had this pre-show and um, drag and independent circus performers would go up. I was like, oh, I'll do something. And back then people didn't watch your ages closely. And also I don't think it occurred to them that, you know, I'd be this like under 18 person wanting to do a burlesque number. And I did what I thought was burlesque, you know. Was it? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or your version of it. <laughs> I took something off. And then, um, yeah. And then when I went out on my own, I started working in strip joints in Atlanta right away. I think that what strikes me, and this is, I say this almost ad nauseum to my guests, but I say it because it's true. What a strong sense of self you must have had. I never entertained the idea that I could be a stripper. And I never thought that my body would (laughs) be appealing to other people. I, you know, I auditioned. So it was kind of, I was like, well, I'll let them decide. You know, I didn't really realize that they, back then strippers were few and far between and they were basically hiring all of us. Honestly, it's interesting now because it's so uh, common. There's so many more strippers and there's so much more media that people see strippers more. And uh, But then it was, there really weren't very many. So what was that like, you know, to be one of a handful, so to speak, and to be that young? It didn't feel like I was that young. I had been wanting to be out on my own and work. I wanted to work in bars. I wanted to party. I wanted to be part of nightlife already. Mm-hmm. So it felt, didn't feel to me, it felt to me like I'd already been waiting for a while to get there. Um, but once I got there, uh, it felt like I thought it was going to be more theatrical than it was. I didn't realize I was going to have to talk to people, like talk to the customers. So, you know, while like, you were actually doing your act, what act? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, at that, at that club, like, you know, we had 
nights when we would do acts. The interesting thing though, is like, that was one location, right? In other uh, cities or eras, like people were doing stuff. Like I went to work at another club like a year later and they were doing more acts, but we were just like doing what we called the cheetah bop because the club where I worked was part of the cheetah three family of strip clubs in Atlanta. And there's this little swaying dance you did. We weren't allowed to do splits. We weren't allowed to put our knees too far apart. We weren't allowed to do floor work. So we just stood there and swayed and made eye contact and then talked to people and they gave us money. And, you know, it was like, the interesting thing about it is that I wanted money fast. You know, I was getting out of a situation, right? So I wanted money fast and there aren't that many substitutes for stripping and, and related sex work where you just, you go in, you make money that, that night you pay bills the next day. Like it's just, there's no job hunt, you know, unless you are going through an agency, which depends on where you are, right? Whether or not you would go through an agency. Are you comfortable sharing what your situation was with us that you wanted to get out of? I actually don't want to get into it too deep, but, um, you know, there were, I was getting away from, I'm going to say tension at home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was a lot of, uh, again, there was that, you know, like I said, I was really harassed in high school and I wanted to get away from them too. So it wasn't just the idea of getting away from the tension in our household, which was very huge. It was also, um, the idea of getting away from the community that I'd been in. I didn't want to be with them anymore. They were mean to me. You were very resourceful. You knew what you needed to do for you. Again, I'm not going to deify you, but I'm struck by that. Uh, <laughs> that you, hey, this is what I'm going to do. Even though I didn't go to strippers college, you know, <laughs> uh, that in spite of what might have been fraught for you at home, you had enough of knowing who you were that I can, I can freaking do this and I'm going to. Uh, I didn't know what the outcome would be, but um, I was adventurous was the main thing. I was like, I want to see what happens next. So I had a, you know, a teenage recklessness when I went in. And um, I also like, in spite of the tension, I was close to a lot of members of my family, including my mom. So I, I didn't talk to them about it for a while, but I did, I knew that I had the emotional support, if not the financial support. Okay. Mm-hmm. So did you keep your career under wraps? Were you very judicious as to who you shared you, what you were doing with? For a while, yeah. You have to remember strip clubs were much more underground at the time. Mm-hmm. Much mm-hmm. more. And um, in Atlanta, not very burlesque. I think they were probably more interesting in Canada. Um, but what I loved is I got to be part of nightlife and um, queer nightlife in particular, um, the music industry. I was a writer and I was able to afford to, um, you know, write without having to get paid for it to develop my art. Um, mm-hmm. And I was able to go to college part-time and work part-time and get by. I think it was generally easier to get by in the like early eighties, just generally uh, financially for young people, but I don't know. More options. You mean there were more avenues to, to go down. 
I think that there was more affordable housing. (laughs) Yeah, user-friendly lifestyle. Exactly, exactly. Uh, It was easy to get an apartment. It was, you know, affordable. Um, You know, the only thing about that is when you're a stripper, you have to have, you have to be able to fill out the application form for everything. It makes it hard to get your next job or your next apartment or what have you because you have these, uh, what we call in the industry, resume gaps. But you could put entertainer, couldn't you have? Be vague? You know, in Atlanta, they would have known what that meant. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> it's fine. It was, it worked out. But here's what I'm struck by, and I might sound like a broken record with this, okay? But this is where you have to educate me. What is the difference or the similarity between stripping and being a burlesque performer? Sometimes there isn't one, but generally speaking, Um, It has to do with the venue and the intended audience. Um, And also like a lot of times in strip joints, depending on, you know, what you want to do in the strip joint, like, you know, the style of stripping you want to do and what the clientele is willing to pay to see. um, You may be looking more for what makes them spend money. Whereas in burlesque, for the most part, you're just doing pretty much what you want. There are variations on this. This is so far from an absolute, but um, honestly, the biggest difference um, between strip joints and burlesque is that when you work in strip joints, nobody ever asks you the difference between strip joints and burlesque. <laughs> but but is it a matter of semantics? I mean, you want to be referred to, I assume, as a burlesque performer, correct? I, for marketing purposes, you don't want people to book you to do the wrong thing, right? So somebody's like, oh, we want a stripper. Uh, we want you to do lap dances and we want you to do pole dancing and everything. So I could do a lap dance and I like to, but mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily, you know, at the age of 58, what they're <laughs> hoping to hire. Although some people are, mm-hmm. um, but I can't pole dance. Yeah, that's <laughs> an incredible, yeah. Stripper, it's now synonymous with pole dance, whereas I didn't see a pole dance for the first 10 years I worked. Or I did see it, but it was didn't not speak to you. Second part of right, right, right. Culture, where now, I mean, you can still go on a strip joint and not see a stripper on a pole all night, mm-hmm. depending on the strip joint, but people think of pole dancing. And at that time, absolutely they did not think about pole dancing. Pole dancing didn't become popular until the 90s. How long did you stay in Atlanta? Um, I started being a feature dancer, which is a touring headlining stripper in the 1990s, uh, early 1990s. And I was doing, you know, big feather fan dances. I was fire eating. I trained myself to do all this stuff. The interesting thing is I'd been stripping for 10 years, but I was an amateur feature dancer, right? Because feature dancing is a whole other set of skills. Um, And I had to make all my own costumes and invest a lot of money. And I did a lot of centerfolds. Um, because that's, they book you based on your credits, like they'll, you know, so they can build you up. Like uh-huh. Oh, you know, yeah. cherry tart of the month, you know, right. October, I think it was October, 1992, 94. I don't know. So, you know, it's this whole thing. And, um, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurialism. You try to figure out merch to sell and ways to maximize your money on stage. And so, um, basically you're doing appearances, appearances, as a um, personality in the adult entertainment industry. Gotcha. And your name back in the day was Joe Boobs? No, it was Tanya Hyde. 
That's a great name. I saw that name in the New York Times, but that's not accurate. So the funny thing about Joe Boobs is, okay, which I love, but I never used it as a stage name because, you know, filters. It's the internet, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But it was actually the name of a character that I used to portray in this performance art piece that I did. And it became my stage name. And I wasn't using Tanya Hyde anymore because... I hadn't been performing for a while. Someone else had started using it. I don't hmm. think it heard of me. You know, it's just, if it's a pun, it's hard to own, right? Yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, did, I just didn't really think about it. And then as people started calling me Joe Boobs, because I was um, partners with another dominatrix, we were both, we were professional dominatrixes working in her private space. And she started calling me Joe Boobs because her husband's name was Joe. So it was to help differentiate and everybody picked up on it. And I was like, this is a good name for my, uh, my salty stripper character. Tell us how you made the transition. As I said in the introduction, that in 2004, you found the New York School of Burlesque. How and why? Well, about the transition, I, one thing that's interesting, and I think this is really common for sex workers that have been in the industry for you know more than a minute, is that <laughs> To try other branches of adult entertainment because you know it's such a flexible industry, right? You can come and go. Um, you know, you can affect your income to a certain extent. So, um, I mean, it depends. You know, not everybody's having the same experience. Obviously, we tend to work in a bunch of different fields sometimes at the same time, right? So it wasn't like I was doing. I was working in strip joints, and then I was a feature dancer, and then I was a dominatrix. Like they all happened. They all overlapped. Sometimes they were happening at the same time. You know, I was a dominatrix and a burlesque dancer, and occasionally, because I missed stripping, I'd go strip in this funny little club called the Pussycat uh, in the financial district in New York City. But I moved to New York in the nineties. Why? Why'd you come here? I was writing a book about feature dancers that never got published and I was moving to publish it. And um, I think I moved in 96, but I had already been working in New York for a while, like going back and forth. And I was part of a circuit of strippers that went around like New York, LA, Atlanta, New York, LA, Atlanta. It related to, you know, the music industry and the adult industry and all this stuff. Is it safe to say that you never had problems finding work? Um, I didn't have trouble finding work, but I couldn't always make money. Hmm, why? Uh, because that's the nature of the business. Like, you know, I would work in some clubs where the customers just didn't like the way I looked or the way I danced or, you know, whatever, and uh, would not do well, have to go somewhere else. How did that affect you? Well, having experienced a lot of, like, this, this is a thing, it's like, we're so afraid of people not seeing us as attractive at a time when we want them to, right? So it isn't right. really that I care what these people think of me in the larger sense of whether or not they find me attractive, but at that moment, I want them to. Um, and so, you know, I was constantly exposed to people not liking the way I look because any given night in a club, and, and there are exceptions, but generally speaking, more people don't like you than do. And at first, I was baffled, completely baffled by it because I was raised in an era and maybe others kept still experiencing this. I don't know. We're like taking off your clothes in public is a big deal, right? Right. So 
you think it's a big deal because you're not supposed to do it. So when you do it and someone doesn't look at you or they raise their lip and look away, you're like, what just happened? Wait, what? Because all your conditioning is that if you take off your clothes, everybody will stare at you either with dismay or pleasure, but that they might be indifferent or actually repulsed, like repulsed is a strong word for kind of distaste you experience in strip joints, but. I can't imagine what that's like to be on stage performing and having people, I'm not into her. How you just don't don't let that shit stick to you is amazing. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you, you live through it, but it sucks. Like it sucks. And there were times when I was like, I can't handle this roller coaster anymore. And you take a break. So, I mean, it's a bar full of drunk people and they come in and some people think like, oh, all bets are off. I'm in a strip joint. I can act however I want. I need you to explain to me the concept of burlesque, which I really thought was dated, dead form of entertainment. And when that rather extensive New York Times article was published and Joe, by the way, subsequently, there were a lot of letters that came in saying, I had no idea people were writing. And this is so fascinating. So I felt a little validated. I need you to educate me about the concept of burlesque. So apparently it never died. Well, you know, it's interesting because there there was a there have been burlesque circuits and people have declared burlesque to be dead every 10 years, you know, and a lot of times it changes format. Like in the twenties and thirties, there were these burlesque wheels where variety shows would tour on these wheels. And um, then, uh, you know, more in the twenties, thirties, forties, you know, you had the, uh, the strip tees come in, you know, strip tees wasn't really a part of burlesque until the 1920s. Um, but variety arts and adult humor and you know, leg shows and outrageous women were part of it. Um, political satire, all of that was part of it. But the striptease comes in in the 20s. Uh, some people d- declare that it ruined burlesque. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, burlesque has died a bunch of times. It's just that, you know, there's sort of a gap in like the 50s and 60s, which was like, if you look at what happened when the movie Gypsy came out, and this is a long version of whether or not burlesque is dead. Sign. In the 1960s, like the movie Gypsy came out, that was a retro movie. They were talking about the past. You know, the movie, the, the song, The Stripper, that goes, was a big hit in 1962, but it was meant to evoke burlesque of the 20s and 30s. Huh. Then in the 80s, there's another burlesque revival. But for me, um, and you know, strip joints didn't exist in the format that we think of them until after the go-go clubs of the 60s and 70s. So there's a whole history of different versions of adult entertainment in nightclubs. And then, you know, as working in strip joints as a feature dancer, we were doing burlesque, what people are now calling neo-burlesque. Uh, and it hadn't gone anywhere except on a different circuit. But then the neo-burlesque movement was mostly not connected to strip joints because it was a lot of punk rockers, performance artists, some of whom had worked in strip joints that wanted to do um, a modern version with a modern sensibility of burlesque. And burlesque has tended to be of its time, but it evokes certain tropes, right? So 
they took the, you know, the glamour, the feathers, the fun, all that stuff. And, and they put it into, uh, you know, punk rock and jokes. And a lot of the musicians who were doing neo burlesque records had been punk rockers. Mm. Hmm. So it had a lot to do with punk rock, rockabilly, which is, you know, as rockabilly has been around since the 50s, uh, a neo pinup culture. And it's a way of exploring, for me, uh, it's a way of honoring what the women were going through in the 40s and 50s and 60s and before in burlesque, because I was getting a really hard time about being a, a strip joint stripper in the 80s and 90s. I cannot imagine what they were going through, right? In terms of feminism? In terms of feminism, in terms of opportunity, in terms of stigma, you know, um, all of those things. So I identified with them and I wanted to see them as people, not just as images on a matchbook cover or the bottom of, an a- bottom of an ashtray. I was like, let's bring them, bring their art form to life. And fortunately, a lot of them are, or were, I mean, they're, one of them passed away this week. Mm-hmm. A lot of women who did burlesque in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And one of my friends who died had been doing it in the 30s. Wow. Wow. Um, so there's a connection of generations which also Mm -hmm. it's about generation gaps and, you know, political ideological conflicts. But I've been able to actually meet these women and have them confirm, um, you know, that this was their life. So the art form is fluid and not static. I mean, that's, that's the sense I'm getting from you. Yeah. So no matter how much it looks like burlesque from the forties, it isn't. And for the audience, it is not that experience. There are, shows that recreate that, but they are really specific. They say, you know, re-experience burlesque as it was in the golden era of this or that decade, but we don't do that. So is it as flamboyant as it was back in that day? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that happened, like for a while, um, do you know who Dita Von Teese is? Mm, That name sort of sounds familiar to me. She's a burlesque star and she's really like a high fashion icon. And, you know, she and I were working in strip joints and had the same agent in the early nineties and her partner, Catherine Delish. And, you know, I knew them. And then there were a lot of, a lot of performers in the feature dancer circuit that were interested in the history of the art form. A lot of people aren't, Mm -hmm. Uh, but part of what happened is that we all started to journey to this place in the middle of the California desert called exotic world that was run by a woman named Dixie Evans who had been a burlesque performer in the 1950s. And she would welcome us all. And, you know, we would come out, we would all dance in the middle of the day, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. like contests that she created called uh, the Miss Exotic World Pageant. And which has, you know, she had a museum on the property that was started by her friend, Jenny Lee, who was a stripper activist. You know, so we connected to all these people and it's just this very rich history. You know, it also struck me in the article, and maybe there's another example of my naivete, that there are men who are very actively in this career, living this career. Burlesque has always had people of every gender performing uh, both variety and striptease. I mean, it tends to um, center on the women, the sort of glorified. Right, right feminine form. Mm-hmm. Neo burlesque in particular, a lot of the people that are performing are doing skits, like their number tells a story or evokes a mood or creates a spectacle as they strip. So they're 
doing something in addition to the glamorous strip. And some of them are anti-glamour, right? So they can do whatever they want. That's their freedom, right? They're not trying, usually not trying to get tips, although there are exceptions, right? So they're not usually trying to get tips. They're expressing themselves and they have three minutes to five minutes to do absolutely anything they want. Mm -hmm. And they get to, you know, choose the music, uh, assemble a costume, create their own choreography. It's all up to them. Like they fly their flag and see who salutes it. Gotcha. But what does that have to do with guys? That means anybody can do it. Ah, because back in the day, back in the day, this was a female centric profession. Yes, it was mostly uh, women dancing. Um, the, sometimes the audiences were mixed. Sometimes they were all men. But um, you have to remember that sex workers, strippers, performers have always been part of an underground nightlife movement. And so there's always been stuff happening that isn't totally visible in the surface. Mm-hmm. Also, like the other thing is right now, there's so much media and people are able to talk about what they're doing. So much of it was hidden. In the uh-huh. mm-hmm. A friend of mine died recently. And just the year before she died, she was in her 80s. The year before she died, she published her autobiography in her, I think she's 81. I'm, I feel terrible that I can't remember her age, but don't, I don't worry know. about it. So she published her autobiography and she had been surrounded by all these people in burlesque who loved her, but it was the first time she came out as transgender in her entire life. Wow. Mm-hmm. She had mm-hmm. been trans since she was a teenager and didn't have, you know, they didn't use the terminology or anything, but she knew that's what she was. And she said, we've always been here. That's fascinating. Yeah. But always been here, but at the same time, marginalized. Extreme. And yeah, and it's still a struggle, I think. You know, obviously the easiest thing to book is a pretty girl in a pretty costume. There's a more open audience for more. So it isn't fixed, but there's more room to work with. Like Mm -hmm. I don't feel, I can talk about, you know, having been young and, and being queer and having people beat me up for it and ostracize me and all that stuff. I don't know what it's like to go to high school now, but I know that I would have been able to find people and a community to protect me sooner with social media. Like I thought I was the only person like me for a long time. Oh, I bet. I bet. If it hadn't been for Rocky Horror, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is a lot of people's, you know, of that era, their entree into, you know, like, oh, I can be queer and it be fun and glamorous. Self-expression and being able on some level to exhale, you know. Community. Like, I don't yes. I know a lot of people don't think of Rocky Horror that way, but it's a community for, you know, weirdos and queer kids, you know. And, and Absolutely. Absolutely. Where you just don't feel alone. I'm glad that we have an opportunity in burlesque to um, acknowledge, celebrate, support and uplift people who might have been in much, I don't know though. You know, I've never lived as trans in the seventies and in the, I've never lived as trans period, but I don't, I only have the experience of being queer. And I can say, I think that it is better. It's improved, but boy, it still has a long way to go. And I don't know what it's like to be in high school right now. Yeah. 
Exactly. I don't know what it's like to be in a small town. I don't remember it anymore. That I mean, I was in Atlanta wasn't that small, but it, it was the 70s were so conservative. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that's yeah. the people that voted in Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Yeah. Where does it stand today? Pandemic notwithstanding. Assess the, the burlesque situation. Well, I think a lot of venues have been able to keep going, although a lot have closed. So um, a lot of people in neo-burlesque are just waiting for it to restart. People are going back to work on a very tentative basis. There are people been performing online, and I think that that has created a whole new dimension to neo-burlesque because it's accessible. Anybody can put on a show without having to navigate the um, limitations and expense of some of the venues. Um, and I think, you know, the burlesque community was, it's, it's very, it's a very powerful, wonderful community, but you know, it's all, it's subject to the same isms as the rest of the world. So, uh, I think it has been a good time for us to sort of reset, re-examine, are we actually living up to our values, the values of inclusivity and diversity that we say we espouse? Are we really doing the work for that? What about performers? Do they age out? Uh, Well, you get tired of hanging out till four in the morning when people start drunkenly coming up with gigs and asking if you want to do them. So Mm -hmm. in that Mm -hmm. sense, yes. I don't know if you could tell in the article you can see there's a lot of different body types, a lot of different ages, a lot of different genders. And there were a lot of people over 40 in that article and they're yes. all performers. Yes. I, you know, I'm, again, I'm, I'm 50, I'll be 59 in August and people still book me. And I think, I mean, it's different because, you know, oh, I have a reputation. I've been around for a long time. Sure. But how, in how many worlds does a naked person's reputation get them booked? Yeah. In burlesque, Mm -hmm. it does. So there would be people that might not want to book me, but I can tell you, I I was booked at this restaurant in, uh, on the Bowery and like a very, a very, uh, what's the word? I can't think of the word. Chic, whatever. Mm -hmm. Tony. Yeah, not too fancy, you know, not like, you know, white linen tablecloths, but, you know, well-to-do people, uh, mainstream people, not not alternative lifestyle, you know, audience. Right. Um, and they don't know anything about burlesque, you know, they just, oh, fancy dancers. And I have not maintained my ability to do some of the dancing and acrobatics I used to do. But I have increased my connection to the audience over the years, right? And so I came out, I was 57 years old. They don't know anything about burlesque. They don't care who I am, right? Um, and I had a blast with that audience. And I was, I would have aged myself out. I didn't know any better. So being I, a burlesque performer is very interactive. It can be, yeah. And I'm a very interactive performer. Like I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do if I can't motorboat people. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, put their head between your boobs and shake your boobs. Oh, I never, <laughs> I didn't know that expression. Uh, it's really fun. And I, you know, like I sit on people's laps and drink their drinks and have them help me take my clothes off. And now mm-hmm. we're socially distant. I'm like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. Oh, that has, I mean, it had to almost be redefined, didn't it? 
for me, for a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people are trained dancers, pole dancers, acrobats, you know, aerialists, like they're not having the same experience I am. What really also struck me about you at the risk of deification, Joe, is how this this fluidity of not reinventing yourself, but moving from one from one thing to another, being an executive, being a historian, being a performer, being a writer. Wow. I feel like I've lived a lot of different lives, even though, you know, there's been continuous threads because I haven't really had what uh, in my generation people thought of as a career. You know, you were supposed to figure out what you wanted to do in high school, go to college for it, get that career, do it for 40 years, retire and play golf. Like that was my, the culture I grew up in. I realize that's not the culture of everybody who grew up in the seventies, but that was me. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I don't think this can hold. I think this is going to fall through. I think this is all bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want to party and I want to get away from all of you. And all of you people who are on this track seem pretty, you've been awful to me. You've been terrible to me. I don't want more of this. I don't want more of you. So I went where I felt welcome, which was nightlife. And, um, and I was, and so I think it was, I wanted to be a writer at the time. I, you know, when I graduated from high school, I was a poet and I was really into doing poetry readings and everything. And I was into like, at that time being a stripper was such an outsider thing to do. And I wanted to embrace, like people were like, we, we reject you. We will continue to reject you. I was like, I can live through your rejection and worse. Mm -hmm. Um, I will go where you tell me not to go. And I will, I will make glamour out of adversity. I will thrive where you say I cannot. I will prosper where you say I cannot. I will influence where you say I'm going to die. You know, and I just, I was resisting the fate that people had written for me. Wow. That is very, very powerful and probably incredibly potent for other people. I think people can have their own private difficulties, even in the midst of the most comfortable surroundings. Like you just don't really know what people's heartbreak is in any given time. So I approach people as if on some level they have something to, they aspire to that seems unreachable or they, there is some part of them that feels broken that doesn't have to be thought of that way. So a lot of times I'm, you know, like I'll go to a bachelorette party and there's, you know, they're just, and I, you know, obviously I'm not doing this right now, but I would go into a room full of people who were just, you know, they're having their frosés, they're wearing their, you know, friend of the bride t-shirts and you think they haven't got a care in the world. And then you hand them a feather boa and you see practically tears come to their eyes. It's like a, they could buy one. It's what, 10 bucks. The amount of permission that people deny themselves, even in the midst of ridiculous amounts of privilege is shocking. And they're like, I get to be frivolous. I get to be glamorous. I get to be sexy. I'm like, you already are. You already are. I can see by the pleasure you're taking in this, that this is part of you. Like, and you don't ever have to come back to it. And get it out of your system, but there's it's just almost impossible to tell what people are really going through. Even and, and you know, there's then there are people who are really suffering and marginalized and that kind of thing. And those people often become invested in burlesque because 
it has that element of permission, you know, be who you want, do what you want, um, and go out and you can be, you know, an older woman like me, you know, that isn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a yoga person or an acrobat or whatever. I just walk around. Um, I mean, I used to be, but I'm not now, or you can be, um, you know, you can have a body that's not considered acceptable. I've seen people go out in wheelchairs and stuff like that and take off their clothes and have a body that isn't considered model perfect or whatever that I don't know. And have the audience scream with excitement that they're doing it and know that the audience wants to see them and that the audience wants to be seen by them. So for people who are struggling with even larger, almost intolerable levels of marginalization and abuse and lack of access and also lack of self-worth yeah but i mean a lot of times when people have had to go through adversity they really know that they're worth something they know these people are wrong right like a lot of my friends and burlesque like a lot of them have gone through it you know and they're just like i have something to say you're giving and you're validating what you didn't get. I mean, that's an incredible gift and that there's no bitterness about that. I mean, I might've felt bitter when I was younger and I didn't really, you know, and also I was in survival mode a lot of the time. And now I, I can see my privilege and I can see that, you know, the amount that that helped, but also I, I appreciate that I got to the other side of a lot of and I don't mean to be dismissive of what I've accomplished because I have privilege, but it, it means that I had a different experience than someone in my exact same position without that privilege. I'm really fascinated and thrilled that you that I got to meet you. And I really, really learned a lot. Maybe there was a part of me, yeah, I'll own that, being judgmental about your profession in my kind of feminist head. And how wonderful to, no pun intended, been exposed to this. It's absolutely fascinating and empowering. I don't know if I empower people, but I certainly enable them. That's not a bad thing. I think that, you know, to have conflicting feelings around the sex industry and everything is, I mean, it's understandable. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an intersection of marginalization for a lot of people in the industry. And it was certainly was for me early on. And then also... It is like, it's not free of all the isms of our world, you know, like, so sometimes it magnifies them, but it's definitely not responsible for them. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. And so, yeah. So like a lot of times people will be like, oh, who would choose to work in a strip joint? I'm like, people who want a flexible hours and cash. Like, I don't know. Why is that so tough? Mm-hmm. Um, but also a lot of people have different ideas. Like you mentioned feminism about, what the role of women in our society should be and what it would look like if we were free of patriarchy and capitalism. And I was like, but we're not. And being able to um, make these decisions and have these opportunities for yourself is absolutely, it empowers you to keep the lights on. You know, it empowers you to move when you need to move. It empowers you to buy a car when you need to buy a car. That's you know, whether or not it empowers you to run for office. I was just going to ask you, when are you going to run for office? I can't believe you just said that. But I think nowadays uh, people are more open to hearing sex workers as 
whole people, Mm -hmm. like entire people who are capable of, like, it's amazing. I think a lot of, one of the things I think is that so many sex workers in the past, uh, you know, not everybody's out. Like I never assume when I'm talking to somebody that I know if they've ever been a sex worker, you know, of any gender, I never make an assumption. Um, and so many of the people that I worked with in strip joints have gone on to be, you know, they write for the New York times and and they're out like I, but a lot of people aren't, Mm. you know, so how many people are out there moving and shaking that have been in the sex industry and have deserved to be seen as whole people all along and any form of feminism that diminishes their, the idea of their agency isn't doing them any favors or other women either. Yeah. The people that are so strident and public aren't necessarily representative of what a lot of people want. Yeah, that's right. That's a good way to put it. As we wrap this up, any irons in the fire you'd like to share with us? I was very fortunate in 20, uh, nine, 2020. Oh my God, I don't know what year it is. Yeah. 2020 <laughs> to get a residency at the New York Public Library to do research on my work on uh, sex workers and, and dress. So I really, 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 really want people to check out Sex Worker Style and it's just sexworkerstyle.com. Oh, that's great. Right now I'm doing it on Instagram while I build up, build up everything, but it is, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm still at the library. I just can't go in person. Right. Well, Joe, this has been nothing short of fascinating. I so enjoyed meeting and getting to know you and you're really one classy broad. (laughs) Thank you, Sandy. And I really admire what you're doing and the way you're curating. And I hope that everybody listens to other episodes of this program. Oh, that's very nice. It's been uh, the most incredible labor of love. And I am going to extend to you what I have to many of the women I've interviewed. I'm always game for a part two. So please don't be shy. All right. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your time and your energy, and I'm very excited for what you're doing. Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.